Hey there, fellow humans. There are times when uh, when I get emails from, let's call them, they're like a marketing agency and they're like, hey, you should talk to this human being uh, on your podcast. And I sort of, I can sniff through the bullshit pretty quickly and, and see what's real. And this uh, fellow today, David Dean Spread, who's Perth-based, very, very much in the CEO coaching, executive coaching space, also around alignment and getting humans to align and what he calls a difficult people specialist, which we'll talk a bit about. He's my guest today, and uh, he brings just a whole lot of wisdom. And I mean that we had an informal podcast run sheet, which we really didn't track on at all, but the conversation could have gone forever. And um, get ready for this one. You will need the pen and paper or whatever you use to take your notes, because you're going to get plenty of um, amazing notes, and we'll catch you at the end. Life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark Labusque talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads. Let's get ready to thrive. Hey, I'm delighted today to be joined by CEO coach and all-round good human being, David Dean Spread. David, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Mark. I'm I'm really pleased to be here. It's It's a privilege. I've heard a lot about you. Well, we well, um, well. You know what? That's where we start because I'm I'm always fascinated by this thing I call first impressions of, like, and I'm going to share my first impressions of you as well. Even though this is the first time we've met about six minutes ago, but uh, we all form judgments and opinions. What were your first impressions of um, of Mark Labusque? Well, it takes six seconds, and uh, and I thought I'm going to really enjoy this podcast. I like the tonality coming out of you, and you're down to earth. And there, there's no bullshit. I like that. Usually when people, last time someone told me that they thought I was really organised, which sort of threw me off track, but I love the no, no bullshit piece because I, I like to think that's how I roll. Now, for, for you, this first six seconds, like when as soon as we got on, we just started to talk like we sort of knew each other. So <laughs> I got an immediate connection and I think it comes from sneakily looking at your LinkedIn as well and going... If I'm reading a LinkedIn profile like that, there is no bullshit. This is straight to the point. And, but it's done in a pretty warm and well-intentioned way. It's not harsh, but I think there's a, there's a message behind it. And I, even after talking to you now for a few minutes, I get the sense that uh, there's no nonsense, but a very helpful human being. Yeah, look, I, I think we, we hunger for people to be straight with us, direct with us, but at the same time, caring and respectful. And I think that's one of the, the most important things that we can do is to deal with anything and everything with care and respect. I know today we're going to cover off on a whole lot of things I send through what I call a very informal run sheet, but there's the idea of alignment and getting humans to pull together. There's also, we're going to, I think we should delve a little bit into, because you're a difficult people specialist as well, about how how do difficult people not understand that they're difficult and how can we help them, I think, is another place to go today. And I know you help organisations to sustain success, which is really challenging. And, and one thing that I, I loved reading about you was you help businesses move from the old fits and spurts, small incremental improvements, but then they go off the rails again to making that sustainable. So there's some places we're going to go today. But before we go there, Mate, I know you've got an amazing backstory, and I, I I want you to tell us about the human being behind the story that we'll get to later on with your work stuff. Who who is David Dean Spread? Ah, <laughs> a loaded question, but yeah, sure. Well, I was 
I was made in India. I was dropped in London and I landed in Perth when I was four. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I grew I grew up in uh, in a town called Medina, Quinana. It's a little um, working village that provided workers for the uh, BP refinery in Quinana. And Dad worked there as an, in the accounts area, and Mum uh, taught at Quinana High School, and I went there uh, for a while. And um, I tell you what, you learn a lot when your mum's a teacher at the same school that you're at, and she's a battle axe. But <laughs> 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 well, I had to cope with um, guys because I'm pretty tall, and so guys who were three years older than me were uh, looked like the same age as me. And, of course, they'd take out my mother's discipline on them. They'd take it out on me. Oh, no. So, so I used to have to fight my way home from school every day just about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, I wonder about that. I was a school teacher myself, but I just w- always wondered if one of your parents was a school teacher, how hard it would be. So what, what, can, what are some of the other things you remember about that time? Um, it, look, it was a great time, really. I mean, apart from that, going, going home from school was um, – in the beginning, I was scared, but in the end, like as I got a bit older and a bit more used to the fact that this is what they're doing, this is why they're doing it, I told mum, mum, can you be a bit more softer with them? <laughs> and she said, no, son. <laughs> I'll do what I think is right. <laughs> and so that didn't work. And uh, but look, I had a I had a ball growing up. Really, we we grew up in um, we were surrounded by bush. We used to ride our bikes up into the Darling Ranges to Serpentine Dam. When I was thirteen, and, and you, you, my parents would go to jail today if they did this, or we'd go to jail if we did it to our kids. But I was allowed to hitchhike with my cousins to Kalgoorlie. Wow! When I was thirteen. So how far was that from home? Uh, it's four hundred miles. Or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just across the road, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it's the other side of WA. We're on the coast, and they're right in the inland. You know, haven't times changed since then? About you know, oh, what, I guess what we used to be able to do: ride the bikes and stay out after dark. And uh, you know, there's something interesting in all that itself around how protected we seem to need to be these days. That we don't go and do a lot of the adventurous things we used to do. Oh, there's no doubt. We're being softened up and dumbed down, I feel, you know, by a whole range of things. And I don't think it's intentional. I mean, there's a lot of conspiracy theories around that. But I I think it's just we're, we're tech-heavy, uh, convenience-heavy, safety's a big deal, and so we, and we can, so we do. Yeah. And so we've become soft and um, I suppose to a large extent narrow-minded. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of that. We've, I had a chat with someone not um, long back about the polarisation of, like, everything. Pretty much you're either one side or the other and and when yeah. we tend not to listen to each other. I wanted to ask you about, we had a bit of a chat beforehand and, like, we sort of shared a couple of stories around our early involvement in managing other human beings. And I, this, this, I think, gives me a sense of the essence of why you do the great work you do today. So can you share a bit about your... After you were hitchhiking to Kalgoorlie at thirteen, and when you sort of started to get down the career path, where did that? Where did it send you to, David? Where would you head? Oh, uh, look! When I was in fourth year high school, and by now, Mum had 
Dad had sent me to Christchurch Private School, which is, uh, well, that was a bit of a shock, came from a bush school to a, a private school. But I won a Duntroon scholarship, and that sort of set me up to go into the Army. And I, I didn't go to Duntroon. I went to Portsea instead, which is um, straight military. I mean, the same as Duntroon. Duntroon has um, a university program attached to it, and I didn't want to do arts. I didn't want to do engineering. I just wanted to be a soldier. Yeah. And um, so I went to Portsea and graduated as a second lieutenant at the age of 20, and now I'm in command of, of men, men a lot older than me, by the way. And I thought that I had to be um, absolutely infallible. I had to be in control. I had to be directive. And I didn't require to be questioned. That was my naive impression of, you know, what happens when you become an officer. I learned really rapidly that that's just <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> I was going to ask you the question, how did that go for you? It didn't go very well. I mean, I as it was, I mean, I was actually the second in command of a military prison. Okay. I, my core was in the military police. That's where I went. I went to the military police. And I had these tough old soldiers who uh, knew a lot more than I did, and I quickly learned um, from them. And, and I've got to say, I really credit them with teaching me a lot because they were very, I think they were pretty kind to me, actually, um, but they let me know in no uncertain terms that, no, that's not how you do it, sir. This is how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I learned really quickly. And, I, and I've, very, I've been very fortunate through my military career to have a really good people around me. Most of the time I was very privileged to have to work with some really, really good people, and they taught me a lot. And even the guys who I didn't want to be like, they taught me how not to be. Yeah. I think that's. I think this is a really good point you just raised there, is that our ability to, to learn from both sides, so from people that are teaching me some things that are going to be – both things are going to be useful, but some of the things I don't want to do and some of the other ones are what I do. I think sometimes we get caught up in – we just need to know all of the really positive stuff and the good stuff and that'll hold yeah. us in good stead. But uh, nothing beats an experience of being a bad manager like I was at one stage or working for one that I think you learn a lot on what not to be rather than everything that you need to be. So I think those things hold you in good stead. Just quickly, because I think this is something that that would be useful for us to understand a bit more about. You're a young fellow, you're 20, 21, and you're in command of men who are quite a bit older than you Many people face that as managers today, and it's it's something that I think from a mindset perspective, it's hard to get around. What was it for you that really helped you to maybe become comfortable enough to be able to take that on? Yeah, and look, that's a really good question, and, uh, and I think it's uh, I think yes, it's a really good point to make as well. I'm, and I'm I'm having that a lot, but now with my with my clients, I have a client who's um, who's a CEO. And he's uh, is his first time as a CEO, and he's quite young. And so, what really worked for me is when I had enough courage to be vulnerable. Nice to to be able to say, "You guys probably know more about this than I do. Let's have a talk about the best way to do this." That's pretty profound because. We usually get taught. Look, I can only imagine. I, I didn't. I worked in corporate, not in the military. But I can only imagine potentially the voice in your head going, "Do not look like you don't know what the answer is, 
because that equals weakness. But, you know, your courage to step into your vulnerability. What made you go there, David? Because that, that could be really risky, couldn't it? Well, it is risky when you're operating out of fear. Mm. I mean, it, then it's a risk. But I saw one of my mentors, a senior officer, actually open up a conversation that way. Yep. We were preparing for a big security exercise in a fairly complex uh, situation, and he had been newly appointed to that role. His senior officer, you know, three levels above me, and he opened up like that because he had in the room a lot of subject matter experts. And so rather than saying, okay, this is the way we're going to go, follow me, man, <laughs> he, he actually just opened up like that. And, you know, the, the room warmed to him, and these were all experienced people. The room warmed to him and provided him with a huge amount of honest input. Yeah. I think it's so important that as managers we step into that vulnerability, into that courage to, to do that, not with, without knowing what's going to happen. But I love what you said about the room warming because I see that a lot. The moment that a manager or a leader gives their people permission by demonstrating those same behaviours, all of a sudden the, the room lightens up, doesn't it? Oh, look, you get, yeah, it makes such a difference. It, it really does. And at the end of the day, we're, we're just human beings trying to do our best, yep. no matter what our official position is. We're just human beings. And just on that, how do we align? How do we get human beings to pull together? Now, given your background in that space, that you're in a space, you know, people, sometimes people, when things get really stressful in the corporate workplace, someone will go, well, did anyone die? And they're like, no, they didn't. But in your in the space you're in, there was real, you know, there's risk. There is a real risk of things that can happen in that space. So you sort of think at times people will pull together more in that space, perhaps because the magnitude of risk goes up. Why is it that human beings, in your experience over time in, in the military, but also in the work you do, why is it that we find it hard and the challenge to pull together in the workplace? Great question. I mean, in the, in the, in the military and in law enforcement, I was in both those areas. We did a lot of training and we were pretty damn good at what we did. And we trained together a lot. And then we went out and did did the deed, did did the operation. Yep. And then we come back and we debrief on it and you know, so on and so forth. And that was a loop that we continuously did. We believed and invest a lot in training. Yeah. Now, when you look at any any, whether it be military or law enforcement or sport or anything that everyone's engaged in really, really at their max. There's always a lot of training that goes with it. And yet in commerce, we don't do that. No. Or we skip it or we try and make it. We've got a one-day leadership program. One day. Yes. Don't get me started on that sort of stuff. It's like, <laughs> would you like to, could you come and do a, a one-day off-site with us and um, to help us to become. To be a leader. Yeah. And it's like, no, <laughs> I actually can't do that because that's not going to work. If you If you want to sign up for longer, and it's not that I'm trying to, you know, it'd be like the old Cairo who says you need 17 appointments to get your back fixed when you can do it in two. But I love your point is in that sort of, in that high stakes, high performance space. And I had Derek McManus on at one stage and he-, he Yeah, I he, love him. Yeah, great he's a guy. great guy. And Derek talked a whole lot about, um, you talked before about the loop and he talked a lot. He used different a different word, I can't recall it, but it's like, you know, we were 
the preparation and the training got us ready. So when the situation happened, we were actually ready for it because we've actually we've trained almost not live, but we've trained a scenario for that happening in the workplace. You know what tends to happen, mate, and I. I I say this a little reluctantly, although not very reluctantly, is we tend to get people to do a bloody psychometric profile of some sort. We send them off for a day or two, they come back in and we expect that all of a sudden they're going to be management and leadership wizards, which they're not. So you see that as a big thing that organisations are missing at the moment is they're really not taking the training and development piece as serious as they should. A hundred percent. There's a couple of ways of looking at it. My, My clients get it. And so I'm very privileged to, to work with people like that. But they've, they've all got a payroll. Yeah. Right? And, and that payroll is a big part of their business overhead. And the problem is that's how they look at it, as an overhead. Yeah. It's actually an investment. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest investment they make in the business is the payroll. And so that should be regarded as, a, as an investment. Now, how do you, how do you look after investments? If you've got an investment and you've got it labelled as an investment and you know it's actually producing everything that the company can do is being done by the people yep. at some point or the other, and that's your payroll, that's your investment, the biggest investment. And so we've got to look after it, and the way we look after any of our assets or investments is to nurture them, to keep maintain them, develop them, make them even better at what they do and that's an investment. So then, then let's look at the other side of it, the overhead. When we've got the overhead mentality, what do you observe when you see those that are going more as humans as units of labour and outputs? They have the um, fits and spurts that you were talking about. The business goes along in a sort of a very jaggedy way and uh, they're constantly having to rework or regroup or reorganise, which they think going to fix things, just like moving the deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah. Is that like the organisation that goes away every year to write its five-year plan? Yeah. And they come back and they put it away and they don't look at it again. Yep. Until the next year they do another one. And sometimes not even ref- not even referring to the previous plan. So even in that situation, let's talk about alignment. The senior team goes off on a on a really important couple of days to align around strategy and the plan and whatnot. What is it that you observe with teams that don't get that right? What What's happening realignment there? Okay, so it shows up in, um, first of all, the quality of the meetings that they have. Yep. And you'll find that there's um, there's a lot of silence or there's a lot of statements being made by certain people and a lot of silence coming out of others. Yeah. Not a lot of questions are being asked. People are sort of making their statements and then shutting up. Um, sometimes the CEO or whoever's leading the um, the meeting hogs the oxygen, takes all the oxygen yep, and um, ignores the fact that there are some people that might want to say something but are not really encouraged to. So you see the symptoms occurring in the way in which meetings are run. So not everyone's been given a voice or been encouraged to speak up. And they don't challenge. There's not enough challenging, respectful and um, like professional challenging being um, offered. And then they go away. They make agreements. Yeah, okay, we're all good. Or they think they are. They go away to their silos. And then it's business as usual. 
and they've all still got different meanings and different numbers in their heads that haven't been clarified. And they don't mean to do this, but they end up pulling in different directions. And that's wasting time, resources, and confusing people. So they've got different ideas. Let's get into the hard wiring of human beings then as well, because I'm sure you'll have a view on this. You might have a team of eight people who go away with really good intention to do that good work and they have some conversations and maybe they don't get to where they need to get to, but they've come out with agreement. When does survival instinct then kick in? Is it on the way home in the car going, oh, shit, I better make sure I hit my number in my team because if I don't, I'm going to get the arse? And then, then we start to move away from being an aligned team to a team of, well, I guess, a group of siloed teams. How much does that hardwired instinct of survival start to kick in here? It's actually, if that away day, if you want to call it that, wasn't facilitated effectively, it, it's happening all the time. Yeah. And it's a filter through which they view everything. And it's even a filter in which they sometimes... Um, withhold because there's a, a there's a level of competitiveness within that group and that's why the facilitation of those away days is crucial the facilitator needs to be aware of those elements and to make sure that they are being neutralized and compensated for mm. and that there's a, a a better approach a better mindset is being encouraged during the course of the away day I think facilitation is a really important part of those days if they're going to get really get something out of it. And look, this is we're starting to plug ourselves now. This is where we come into it. I reckon at times is someone who who knows enough about the business but is external to the the goings on. And plus, the other thing that person will do, and that's why I love you know reading your LinkedIn profile is you're going to be prepared to very respectfully, with good intention, call out the bullshit or do this. A lot of facilitators have a sheet called the parking lot, David, and they park things on it and they never come out of the parking lot. And I think it's really important when we're doing our work, if we're going to help organisations to pull together, is that the parking lot things are on another sheet that says shit that's too hard that we're going to solve. Yeah, and those parking lot things, some of them are are critically important. Yep. Yep. And just unable to be dealt with in that time frame or in that moment Mm. because we may not have the right people there we may have discovered we don't have the people that we should have there and that's another point a a lot of those alignment problems arise because the meeting's too non-inclusive yeah and we don't have the right range of leaders in the in the room and ideally you'd have um team leaders in fact ideally the entire leadership cohort should participate in strategic planning yeah and I think that idea that every voice is heard, particularly those that are have got some skin in the game, that you just don't know who might have the answer if you don't spread that net a bit more. And I know, again, let's call this an in, this is an investment, not an overhead. So Correct. as an investment, what a great investment to make to get them all in the room rather than thinking it as, oh, shit, we can only take 12 away because we've only budgeted for that. But human being number 15 was the one that would have, broken the whole day open yeah and it's not only about the day it's it's about if these senior leaders alone are in their planning strategy there's an execution team leader there that might be able to say hey guys we're not trained for that yet yeah 
or we don't have that resource available yet, or we hang we um, we know that there's a problem in that way and it needs to be resolved before we move ahead. Mm. So there's one aspect of it. The other aspect is that of sustainability and um, succession planning, that we want these leaders one day to step up, don't we? And so let's bring them in to the uh, thinking so that they can think strategically as well as operationally. Yeah. And so we expose them to having meetings at a strategic level, not just operational or execution meetings. Yeah. As you were talking there, and you said sustainability, and I went to the other end of the spectrum, which I think is, I think where a lot of us, myself included at times, were afflicted by this um, disease of short-termism, like last week's results, the monthly review, the quarterly review, whatever it might be, and we're sort of looking, look, we're, we're most looking backwards, but we're also looking at what's next. Like, what are we going to do now? What do we do now? And what's the relationship between looking further into the future, particularly around things like succession planning and strategic planning and all these types of things, what's the relationship between having a longer-term view of this stuff versus a in-the-moment, oh, shit, we had a bad week. What are we going to do next week? What, what do you think there? I think that we've got to have the short-term, the medium-term and the long-term in mind. Nice. All the time because that's our direction. And if we only focus on the short term, we, we'll end up zigzagging all over the place, yep. attracted by shiny object syndrome. And then we go up and down and in and out and, and we leave and we waste a lot of time and, and we actually forget our true north, yep. which is that, that long-term view. And then there's the medium-term view. And normally we, you know, we begin with the end in mind. And work backwards, and that's how we plan. And then we move to the, so I know what I need to do tomorrow in order to stay, you know, in line with my long-term view. So we, we it's like a reverse engineering sort of approach. Yeah. Commercially, it does depend on what is the aim. Are we creating an exit plan? Yeah. Are we preparing for an IPO in the next 18 months? And they and that then makes us forces us to look at the shorter term. Or are we in a an existential threat situation where we've because we're in tech, say, and our, our technology has to completely change inside the next six months of we're out of business. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of other factors that are at play depending on the nature of the business. But I think it all comes back down to the individual mm. in the end, the human, Yep. which is, you know, where am I headed? And then where are we headed? And then that's when it becomes more complex yep. because of the diversity that's involved. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I like browning it back into the human, that the idea that, and we go back to the survival piece, people are going to be thinking, we want the business to thrive we want our department to thrive, but we also want to thrive as well. I, I'm not sure that we spend enough time on in the space of leading self. I think we need to spend more time in there. We, we tend to, particularly in training, we tend to send our managers off to to learn. And it's important how to have difficult conversations or how to motivate people, how to engage people, negotiate, all of those things. But we don't seem, if you go back to the human, as you said before, which I really liked, what's your advice for organisations that when they're thinking about training, which has come up as a really critical piece of, you know, sustainable success in an organisation, what about focusing more on the leading self element of training? What, what are your thoughts around that? I mean, we could spend the rest of 
the week and we wouldn't cover it all, but it it, it truly is crucially important. Yep. And that and that's in the personal professional development spaces. Personal and professional. So technically and then developing as a human. And and all humans, I believe, desire to be the best they can be. And that is the best investment that any any um, leader can make is in helping his humans or her humans to become the best people they can be. It will show up in people living the values. Yeah. It will show up in people being curious enough to continue to learn. It will show up in people beginning to really see the value in what they're doing and why they're doing it and why they're in the role they're in. And they'll have more fun, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a lighter, it's a lighter touch. What do you think about the human element of this? And obviously I'm, I'm into that, but also understanding more today that we need to combine both the technical and the human. Yeah. How do you get a message through to Let's say I'm going to consider myself as part of the old guard because I used to be all about the tangibility of the KPI. I can see that number, so we've got to focus in on that versus the intangibility of some of the things we've talked about today, courage, vulnerability, perhaps compassion, fun, you know, helpfulness and stuff like that because you can't see that on a KPI sheet. I don't think I know anyone who's got a KPI sheet of they're tracking things like that, but these things are crucial. How do you convince someone to hold their nerve, perhaps if the business isn't turning around straight away, but you're focusing in on those key human skills. Okay, so fortunately there is some data now available on the uh, ROI of improving culture. Nice. The return on investment for improving the culture. And we know there is a direct line between um, the right culture and desirable results. And I feel that as human beings, uh, our ego wants us to um, show the world that we're actually quite complex, intelligent creatures. And look, you know, if you use my service, it's really complex and you really do need me and I'm going to charge you an arm and a leg. <laughs> and so we make things complex. Yep. And then we've got engineers and technical people who are really good at that stuff, but they don't realise that there's a human side to it. That, that translates it into results. And so I, I end up talking about the return on investment. Nice, nice. And, you know, it is actually, a, you know, you will get that. And then I ask them questions about in their career, what did they enjoy the most? And they'll talk about some success they had. I said, so the results are pretty good, yeah? Yeah, but I asked you about enjoyment. Yeah, and now you're linking enjoyment and results from your own experience. So why don't we try and bring that into your business now? There's an interesting thing I used to, with my last team, I introduced at one stage and their brains weren't wide for this, David. So they were like, they couldn't answer it straight away. I flipped the words enjoyment and achievement. Now, usually achievement was work and enjoyment was outside of work. So I asked them, what did you enjoy at work this month? And what have you achieved outside of work? And for the first month or two, they struggled to come up with things that they'd enjoyed, even though they had, but they started to talk about, and this is I think where you're going here is they started actually to talk about the things that were happening between the human beings in the yeah. business. It, it ultimately, it was the interactions between the human beings 
It was the alignment between the human beings. It was the commonality in the connection that ultimately helped them achieve their results. And I think I'm starting to see that that's starting to shift now where it used to be a bit the other way around. Here's what we've got to achieve. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to enjoy what you have to do because work's not supposed to be enjoyable and fun and all of these things. Well, (laughs) well, exactly. But I reckon I'm seeing some shift. And I wanted to ask you, because, you know, we've had the pandemic going on. What have you noticed in these two and a bit years of some sort of shifts around the way organisations are looking at their people? And because really we've gone into each other's bloody houses and done all sorts of things and seen animals and all that. What are you noticing and what do you think is going to be sustainable versus, a, you know, a shiny object here? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that uh, what I'm seeing is uh, people um, have had enough yep. of the old mentality of, you know, nine to five o'clock in, be accountable for your hours. People have had enough of that and they're leaving the workplace that is still trying to get that back. And I think Elon Musk has just hit the news um, yeah. with something along those lines and it's not he's had a bit of a backlash on that. So there's a learning curve there. I think that leaders have realised they need to be more um, empathetic. Uh, that doesn't mean to say they, they become weaker. They have to be more considerate. We are facing a, um, without a shadow of a doubt, a mental health tsunami. Yes, and um, there is no doubt about that. I'm seeing it a lot at work, this level of stress and anxiety that people are experiencing is um, is high. And that's my first thing I do is um, when I'm working with a group or an indiv- individual, bring us both back to being calm and centred. Yes. And, and ready and open. And there's a lot more focus now on psychological safety and uh, mindsets, which I'm very proud to see happen mm. and pleased to see happen, proud of of people doing it. Yeah. Elon Musk's is an interesting one. Like, I have a bit of a view that perhaps he's trying to show that there aren't the entitled, that, that you know, those who have to come into the factory because they can't work from home. He's just saying, hey, I want you to come in because we sort of need to be together. We need to be together as a group of human beings. And I know he's copped a lot of grief over what he's put out. Maybe the wording of what he put out wasn't great. I do want. I do think, though, his intention is to maybe try and galvanise that organisation rather than have some doing this and some doing that. Whether that's right or wrong is also up for debate. But, you know, I also look at it and say, you know, perhaps that's leadership. He's just, he's not going down the pathway of the, of potentially the populist approach there. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that he um, got his messaging wrong. Yeah. And it was a bit command and control. And there is a better way of doing it, I believe. Yeah. And there, there are going to be people who need to be in the workplace because that's where the tools are. And we can't take the lathe home. No. We can't assemble the car in your home. It has to be done at the factory. So we've got those realities and then there are other ways of of working for other people who can be in the office at times and work remotely at times. And I think it's a matter of um, recognising what the role requires and what the role can do best at and tune into that particular thing. It's going to be almost 
an individual role-by-role thinking, not one size fits all. I, I, I think that uniqueness piece, I think that's shone out a bit in the pandemic where people have started to realise, having worked with some clients, we just had a, we had eight teams from a particular business. They all got a day just to sit down and we had conversations and what they learn about each other about when I do my best work. And some of them it could be based on their their family situation. My best work's done at six to eight o'clock in the morning or yeah. mine's done later at night. And I think those sorts of things are are really important. It's interesting me talk about the great resignation. I'll get your thoughts on that in a minute. I also wonder if there's something that the great resignation is the outcome of what you were talking about before, which is what I call the great realisation, is that human beings in essence have realised that, hang on a minute, there might be a little bit more to life than being a 12-hour-a-day office rat. There might be some other things that I'd like to do. So what would your advice be? Look, because I think everyone goes to the outcome or the, the resignation, what are we going to do? We better try and keep our good people if they thought about the great realisation when people have woken up and gone, maybe this isn't for me or maybe this is for me, but if someone would just listen to me, what's your advice for CEOs to get a bit further back downstream rather than, you know, straight to I'm going to leave and I want more money? Yeah, look, it, it, it's really um, organisational development 101. Yeah. Choose the right people first time. Yes. It's the biggest investment you make in the business is hiring someone. Yeah. All right, and the, the cumulative effect of that. And so we, we need to, I believe, we need to spend a lot more due diligence in our hiring process. And we've got to be we've got to use a combination of science and skill yeah. to make sure we have the right person, that they are the right person in their own mind even, let alone the hirer's mind, you know, how many times have you asked your clients, what do you really want to do? <laughs> well, well, you know the question I ask them today? Oh, before you tell me what you really want to do, tell me what you don't want to do. Yeah. Because I reckon what happens these days, and particularly I'm coaching a few people in transition, and they're, and they're coming up with a list of these are all the things that I'd like to do. Now, my advice to them is I reckon that's a safety net that you've just created for yourself just in case several of those things don't work out. You'll pop to the next one or the next one. And I'm like... Get really clear on what you don't want to do first because yeah. that should be the starting point. If you don't want to go back into the same sort of role, the same sort of environment, under the same sort of manager, or you don't want to commute as much, work that out first before you work out what you do want to do because – and this is the question, mate. I wonder if you if you were ever asked this question because I wasn't. No one ever asked me as I was progressing through, hey, Mark, do you want to manage human beings at some stage in your career? I think we just assume because the system promotes technical competence and at some stage that's going to mean we've got people. But everyone wants to do that. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, that's uh, – look, my um, my mission, my my whole mission is to help leaders be the best they can be. Yep. And it, the focus is on leadership, no doubt, no doubt about that. But not everyone really wants to be a leader. Yeah. Nor should everyone be automatically deemed to be a leader. It, you can be if you want to be. And you're prepared to do the, the the training, and and go through the pain, you know, of that learning curve. And you know, if you want to be a leader, are you willing to make the tough decisions on your own? Mm. Are you willing to take the blame for everything that goes wrong, and give the credit away to everyone else when it goes right? Are you willing to be lonely a lot? Mm. Are you willing to 
be on on the field first and leave the field last, theoretically speaking, spiritually speaking, if you like. Yep. Are you willing to make sure that your people eat first? Are you willing to be kicked out when it's time for you to be kicked out? Yeah. Are you willing to relinquish your position for a better person, more suited for this time and this moment? Because we've all got um, a use-by date in our leadership position that, you know, whether we go up or sideways or down, doesn't matter, nothing wrong with that. I reckon one of the hardest questions I ask of individuals in, in exec teams is what are you prepared to lose in order for this organisation to gain? And that could be, I'm actually, it might be my time. It could be my time to move on. Yeah, let's find a better leader than me for, yeah. this, for this company right now. So just on that too, because look, you're, we are jumping all around the place, but I like this. So I, I have a, no, 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 this is because I reckon you're providing so much bloody gold here and that's why it's an informal run sheet. So I have a strong belief that there are a different type of leader or a different style of leader for different times. What are your thoughts around that? Like, you know, sometimes we need that real logical head-based, pretty tough, even tyrannical type to get things moving. I, I worked under that for a while and I think we needed it where I was. But then and then once you've been through that for a bit, you might need someone to come in who's a little bit more below the neck, heart, gut-based type stuff. What, what do you think? Yeah, love the question. I think that overall, you know, like in, from a big meta verse, if I, I don't know, use that word anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'll allow that. From a, from a big picture perspective, I think we need to be, transformational because we're going through rapid change. Yep. And I think that that's got to be the the overall style of leadership that we bring to the table. But within the movement of the day-to-day and the week-by-week, we will need to deploy a range of leadership styles depending on on the individuals that we're working with as a team and the nature of the work itself and the conditions around that work. And the model that uh, most people know about that fits that is situational leadership, where it does depend on, and I really think that's a good piece of work, and I reckon anyone involved in leadership needs to understand that model and then adjust it according to the situation and the nature of the people. Yeah. But looking inside a bigger picture of we need to be transformational leaders because we are helping ourselves and everyone else around us move through what is right now rapid change. It's like learning multiple dance moves. Like it is. There's going to be some like really basic dance moves, and I can't dance, so I don't even know what dance moves I'm talking about here, but then there's going to be some very technical, some higher-level ones, and it's the ability yeah. to be able to move from one to the other, I guess, is, is what's going to help people. And that's what we need to be able to do. And, and that, that particular piece of work comes about through what I call attitudinal competence, which you would have seen on my, yes. my site. Because we're all capable of any kind of attitude you like. We've got all of it in us. Our need to be adaptable, flexible, and resilient, self-aware and situationally aware is really paramount these days. And I think any leader or a manager, and we end up doing both all the time, don't we? Yep. Leading and managing, the two different things, but we're doing both. We we do, I believe that we need to be very adaptable in our style 
and suit the style to the situation and the people in it. Rather than, I have this particular style of leadership, that's how I lead. No, no, not anymore. And then everyone tends to mirror what they see from above. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's (laughs) the real danger. Hey, you talked before about, I call this a Simply Practically Human podcast for many reasons, but one is that I have this issue about why is it that we try and make things so complicated and complex? Now, you shared before about ego, which I think is, is one big thing. It's like I need to look smart and come up with the next thing, and maybe that helps me to survive in the in the, in the the away day type situation. I come up with a clever, some sort of clever thing. Why else yeah. do you think it is that from all of your time in the workplace, why else do you think it is that humans tend to try and move towards the complex and complicated than maybe what's simply there in front of them? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really good question and it's a difficult question to actually nail down any particular answer, but I think part of it is our drive, the inner drive, a life force, a drive that we have to grow yep, and to uh, learn and to experience and because that is what we, we're fundamentally, when we take away our fears and our habits and our, and our ignorance, we replace that with courage, better practice and continuous learning. And so there's this, like the universe is growing, isn't it? Yeah. And so are we, with it, everything's growing. But it's a loop too, you know, so it comes back with, you know, all of that. And I think that that in itself is um, the tendency to complexity. Yep. I think it's just a general, I think it's nature until it reaches a point where it has to collapse and start again, which is probably where... We might be seeing a bit of that going on right now. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) So let's wrap it up with... Where can people contact you, connect with you, learn more about the great work that you're doing in helping organisations to get out of the shiny fits and spurts and things? And where do we go to to find out more about uh, David? Mark, there's only two places you need to go to, really. One is uh, my website, Metitude. That's M-E-T-A-T-T-U-D-E dot com. Yep. And have a good dig around there. There's lots of resources there, lots of ideas. Free resources as well, lots of free, most of it's free. Or you can uh, go to my LinkedIn um, site. I'm the only, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm the only David Dean spread on planet Earth. There you go. So if you Google, you know, D-E-A-N-E hyphen S-P-R-E-A-D, David, you'll find me and you can get to me. I'm So Google, LinkedIn and my website. I, I don't do Facebook, I don't do Pinterest, and I don't do Instagram or Twitter. Yeah, no, that's good. Just uh, just LinkedIn and my website, and you can find me on Google. There's plenty of good resources on your website because I've had a, had a look there. I told you we go everywhere from defending yourself because your mother, te- your mum teacher used to give older kids a hard time to hitchhiking, the military the work that you're doing, and and I guess all of that lived experience combined with the theory that you've learned over time has is, is added up to a really amazing episode today. So, David, thanks for joining me. Mark, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it myself. It's been great. Well, I love David. Some things he, he shared about leadership and he's like, be prepared to be lonely, be prepared to give credit, be prepared to take blame. And 
it's courageous to say that you may know more than I do. So some of these little gems of wisdom, just reinforcements, I think, those simple messages that reinforce that humans are inherently good and humans will pull together if they feel like they are heard, they are needed, they are appreciated, they're acknowledged. I love this point about that humans are investments and not overheads. So when we're thinking about the payroll, that the payroll is an investment, it's not an overhead. And if we changed our mindset on that, we would start to realize that we look at investments very, very differently in our minds to what we looked at overheads. So maybe if you're thinking about payroll as an overhead, how do you start to flip that and think of it as an investment in your people, in the growth, in building situational awareness, in building resilience, in building self-awareness, in focusing in on, as David said, in his time in, in the military and also in the police was lots of training and lots of learning loops going on there, practicing lots of training and coming back. So then when they're ready, when they need to be ready and his point about, you know, the away day and doing these things, let's do a one day training program, really aren't going to cut it if you want to create like really well aligned organizations with human beings that are, even though they're looking after their own area, they're not siloed, they're all collectively pushing in the same direction. His thoughts around how we can combine both the transactional requirements in management and leadership and the transformational requirements at the same time, whilst complex and complicated, I think he really simply explained that. And I loved how he finished with the, we are capable of anything. So it was fantastic to speak to David. I hope you got plenty out of that just as I did. And if you loved it, why not rate it five stars? Leave us a little comment as to why. And if you liked it, share it with your friends. Share it broadly. And um, you never know who might get hold of that and just pick up some of the profound wisdom and little gems that David shared with us. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical, keep it human. Bye for now. Bye for now.